We are back. In 2008, we were tickled to talk to Arthur James Kekalius about his book, The Physics of Superheroes. Kekalius worked out what would be required for these heroes to do what they do. We asked at one point about devices that would enlarge objects to giant size. Even if you solve the problem, how to get bigger, there's this, this square cube law you're going to run up against. Ah, well, that's exactly right. Thank you. That's exactly right. There's a separate problem because as you get bigger, you get heavier, but your bones are only able to support the, the, the weight of your body according to their cross-section. I mean, when you think about it, if you have a fishing line that can hold um, a 20-pound fish, a uh, 20-pound fishing line, and you want to hold up a 40-pound fish, you don't make a longer line. You get a fatter line. You get a thicker line. And because it, it's the cross-section of that line that determines its strength and its ability. The length is irrelevant. So, But you grow in all three dimensions. Your mass increases as you, as in all three dimensions. If you go get 10 times bigger, your mass and your weight become a thousand times bigger, but your bones can only get a hundred times stronger, able to support your weight. And even though in your bones there's a lot of redundancy in our skeleton structure, uh, eventually you reach the point at about somewhere between 60 to 100 feet where you just stood up and you'd break your back. <laughs> you'd break your back, you'd break your legs, your body would not be able to support your weight. Another reason we frown on people trying to develop growth rays in the, in the laboratory. Yes. And those fools called us mad. <laughs> let's, let's talk about conservation of energy. Uh, use a wonderful example of the flash and how much food he'd need to burn to run this fast. Absolutely. I mean, we, we eat uh, to get raw materials, to get atoms in our body for, for cell replacement. But we also do it because certain, uh, certain materials, you know, organic matter, has stored chemical energy that our bodies have evolved and learned how to transform into the energy we need to do things like maintain our body temperature and to keep our blood flowing and also to run, to run, to, to walk, to do all the things we do. The flash running close to the speed of light needs an awful lot of energy. <laughs> and if we, when you plug in the numbers, He's got just to run at a fraction of the speed of light. He needs to eat 150 million cheeseburgers. <laughs> so even chewing at super speed, that's going to be an awful lot. <laughs> so at some point there we have to say, okay, this, you know, doesn't look right from a physics point of view. But when you consider all the good he's done for, for us here over the years, I'm willing to give the flash a pass. Later that same year, Simon Singh joined us to talk about his book on medical quackery. He was especially hard on homeopathy, the most outrageously bogus of the many sham modalities that are out there. We wanted to help him take down this spurious discipline. When you have those good quality trials, that's when homeopathy fails to register any positive, um, you know, in, in general, there's still no convincing evidence. And, um, it, it, it's strange. Well, we, we, the book was published uh, in Europe a few weeks ago now, and, and we immediately got a huge amount of criticism from homeopaths who said, we didn't know what we were talking about, we were being selective, um, you know, we were in the pay of the pharmaceutical industry, all sorts of, of horrible things were said about myself and my co-author. And, and we said, look, if you think we're wrong, we will give you a check for $20,000 straight away if you can show us any convincing evidence that homeopathy is effective. And, and several weeks later, still nobody's claimed that money because the truth is there is no convincing evidence. 
When they finally took a look at this, as you explain in the book, uh, they were able to deduce how researchers had actually gone wrong here. It's an interesting story. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, it was a chap called Jacques Benveniste, a French, um, a French researcher based in Paris. He, he um, tried to study homeopathy at a very fundamental level. So instead of looking at patients, looking at individual cells and looking at how homeopathic preparations could affect individual cells. Uh, now, homeopathic preparations, as we said earlier, less is more, according to homeopaths. So much so that the final remedy often has nothing in it whatsoever, no active ingredient, and yet still the memory is supposedly active. Now, he or his assistant seemed to observe that cells were affected by these, these remedies that had nothing in them. And it was such a revolutionary discovery that it made the most prestigious journal in the world, Nature, a scientific journal that's broken so many big news stories over the years. And uh, I, I remember it at the time, I, and I, I was astonished. Here seemed to be evidence for homeopathy, which, which almost broke the laws of science. Um, now, Nature did something rather unusual. It said, you know, we published this paper, but we reserve the right to go back and investigate and repeat the experiments. And when they went back and repeated the experiment, um, they found out that actually there were just some biases that were creeping in. The observer so much wanted to see the effect that, that she was looking for um, that, that, that she sort of hoodwinked herself. It was subconscious. There was no deliberate uh, malpractice going on here. There was no deliberate deceit. But, you know, we have to be careful of... of falling for our own prejudices and, and, and seeing what we want to see rather than seeing what's really there. And when you, when you remove those biases and did ind independent analyses, then this effect gradually disappeared and, and it's never really come back, to be honest. So um, I, I, I sort of wish that Nature had never published that paper. In 2009, Dr. Dean Adele, the longtime radio host, joined us to talk about his pet peeves which also included a look at quack cures. Well, you've been unsparingly critical of, of lots of different fads in, in medical treatments. The one that comes to my mind from a few years back was shark cartilage. It was decimating the world's shark populations and, and not really benefiting anyone. And fads in medicine are just a bad idea. Yes, it, you know, and it was laughable then and so obvious because look, I put that up over the top where sharks don't get cancer, and of course sharks do get cancer. <laughs> So you state an untruth in a book title, and then you try to tell people, wait, that's a lie, that, that's not true. And from there, of course, we've decimated the population, and I think of all the poor people, you know, who tried this, who had cancer, and who lost the battle. And, of course, the perpetrators, they walk scot-free. It just doesn't seem we or Congress or anybody in this country cares about that aspect of health fraud. So it's up to the consumer uh, to think this through on them for themselves. Shark cartilage is from the fringes of medicine, but uh, conventional medical wisdom in recent years has put maybe half of America's kids on medicines for ADD. You've, you've taken a very dim view of that practice. Yes, I, of course, that medication can really help some of these kids, but there's no way the percentages of American kids that are currently on medication have a, quote, real neurological problem. It is complex, the borderlines are soft, and there are a lot of experts who are very chagrined, chagrined by this, that, you know, America has decided the easiest way to deal with kids who may be different learners, who have different personalities, who are maybe bored with school or not behaving in a predetermined way, 
that these kids have a neurological illness that doesn't exist in Europe or Asia or other places. It just makes no sense. But it's an easy, expedient remedy uh, because we would much rather, you know, take a pill and do the hard work to find out what's going on with our child, what's going on with the school, the teachers, our child's learning abilities. Because some of these kids are really smart and really clever. And I, I, I was one of them. And I think we often are drugging these kids into a sort of submission and robbing their creativity. And if you go back in history, you'll find a lot of people who are unmedicated, hyperactive, or ADD kids have made great genius contributions to our world. And there's a long list of them. And so I think we just have to be careful. I, I would just say to parents, you know, get the opinion of more than one person. You know, you walk in your pediatrician's office, and in a half an hour, your child's being prescribed Ritalin. you got to ask some questions. you got to ask a lot of questions. I think that's way, way too quick, and nobody can make an accurate diagnosis in that short amount of time. And speaking of bad judgments, we also spoke to Jay Rankin in 2010. Jay was a doorman at Las Vegas' MGM Hotel. His book, Under the Neon Sky, took us on a journey to Sin City. To me, Las Vegas offers everything. And it's your chance to possibly rekindle a relationship. It's certainly a chance for a relationship to experience new things with all the shows, all the entertainment, all the restaurants. Vegas is a pretty spectacular, pretty stunning place. But what I did notice and what I did see among some couples was that look, and, and I've referred to it before, that look in their eyes where I could only assume that they did not spend quality time together. <laughs> they did not share a good time together. They lost money. Possibly um, some very damaging things were said between the two of them. Uh, because they were so exhausted or they had been drinking for such a long period of time without taking a break. The child's lunch money is gone for the year. Whatever the reasons, it was that rage, that self-loathing. Very often I'd see men screaming at women. I've seen women screaming at men. And, and some of the things I've overheard is, how could you? How could you have done that? Or why did you do that? Uh, lots of crying, and uh, it, it, it's interesting. It really is. It, it really, Las Vegas, as much as it offers, can test all relationships, believe me. Throughout this five-year period we were looking at, well, we did plenty of humorous bits. We were way ahead of the nation, we think it's fair to say, when we reached out to Donald Trump as he was flogging yet another scam, in this case, his Get Rich seminars. People like me, said investor Carl Icahn, are out to win, and winning is money. And if you, uh, if you share that sort of philosophy in life, you might want to consider taking up uh, Donald Trump on his various seminar offers. I got one in the mail here uh, fairly recently. I, I did not attend the event. But I did like the charming way that Donald Trump signed the letter that was sent out to all of the uh, prospective participants. <laughs> he signs it, Donald Trump, real estate billionaire. So we got to thinking, why don't we see if we can get Donald Trump on the program? His people said he would. So joining us now from his home in Palm Beach, Florida, welcome to Radio Parallax, Donald Trump. Eric, have you achieved the financial success you deserve? Well, I'm not sure. I have, and this weekend I'm going to show you how to achieve financial success. Let me ask you, Doug, do you have the right mindset to be rich? 
Well, that's a good question. I do. Do you eat filet mignon every night? Well, not. No, I can't say that I do. No. I do. Do you drink Dom Perignon out of the shoe of a supermodel? That doesn't even sound sanitary. I do. Have you been asked to be a celebrity judge for a contest called World's Greatest Asses? Mr. Trump. I have, and you can too. Well, you know, that's, that's not a major goal, frankly. For the incredible price, Doug, of forty nine ninety five, you and your listeners can hear my real estate wealth secrets. This is actually a non-commercial station. You want to do pledge drives all year? Don't be a chump. Listen to Trump. My can't-miss tactics were known only to me till now. We really can't go there, actually. You'll learn my secrets, like how to buy low, sell high. How to build value while always being a real classy guy. Classy. Always, my friend, always. When I pass gas, it's through soap, baby. But listen, millions have used my techniques to get rich. Why shouldn't you invest six hours at forty nine ninety five? It isn't the money. My seminars normally go for three forty nine ninety five. But look, this is our annual millionaire special. What what does that mean? Tony Robbins is coming. He's not just the tallest motivational speaker in America, he's got the whitest teeth and the crispest crease in his trousers of anyone you'll ever meet. Gordon Uncle John Javna joined us to talk about the latest of his hilarious books in the Uncle John Bathroom Readers series. Well, you, you, you do some scientific studies in this, in this edition. I have to cite one because I was just quite taken by it. You note that in 2005, Spanish researchers discovered that rats have difficulty telling the difference between Japanese spoken backwards and Dutch spoken backwards. <laughs> yeah, and to think some people say mankind's not progressing. Yes, here, here's one. A cog- cognitive psychologist, Daniel Oppenheimer of Princeton, wrote a study arguing that short, simple words make writers seem more intelligent than long words do. Uh, the name of Oppenheimer's study was Consequences of Erudite Vernacular Utilized Irrespective of Necessity. <laughs> yes, I was hoping you'd cite that one. <laughs> uh you got a section on pronunciation. You often have things like that in these books. And, and I was stunned to know that, uh, well, I knew that fort, it's fort, not forte, more properly. But I did not know that it was more properly quasi, not quasi. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's more properly gala than gala. It's more properly prelude. Excuse me, it's prelude, not prelude. And, of course, the classic, it's either not either okay and we have to and i have to i have to say though that two things first of all i we don't like to preach to people if you say these words another way it's fine uh, a lot of these words have have two uh pronunciations or more and you know language changes all the time so uh we're not being critical of anybody who pronounces it either and that's sort of either. Uh, it's just that the, the, according to dictionaries, that that is the preferred pronunciation. Well, then this this allows me to, to do one that that uh, you know with that I need to clarify. Uh, my sources tell me that it, the seventh planet really is properly named Uranus, not Uranus. Yes, but Uranus is so much funnier. This edition we're discussing ran a long series of articles about Nevada's celebrated Comstock mine, which we found pretty fascinating. The best part of the whole book, you're talking about the Comstock mine, and you're explaining how these guys have the world's richest silver mine. They're making a fortune on it, but they're making a bigger fortune on it with stock manipulations yeah. because they can send the price up or down depending on how, the, how they mine the silver, and by short-selling and other tricks, they're able to fleece investors. Right, and that's pretty timely. Uh, I mean, with all 
I mean, it's not, it's not what's happening in the market today, but it gives you an, an idea of what can happen and what did happen, in fact. They just manipulated the price and had nothing to do with how much, how much uh, uh, gold was in the ground or, or silver was in the ground. It had to do with how they uh, sent the news in and, uh, and, as you say, selling short. People could make a fortune when there was no silver coming in, and they could lose a fortune when the, when the mine was doing well. It was, it's a pretty interesting story. Yes, disturbingly like uh, the headlines of today. You have a chapter on doing a Ratner. What, what is that? Uh, that's making an incredible business blunder. Uh, and uh, it comes from a fellow in Canada, if I remember correctly, uh, named Ratner. Oh, no, it's in England. I'm sorry, it's in England. He owned a jewelry uh, uh, <laughs> uh, chain of jewelry stores. And um, at a uh, speech in 1991, he was giving a speech to the um, Institute of Directors, which is a kind of CEO think tank, and he said, uh, we do cut glass sherry decanters complete with six glasses on a silver-plated tray, all for four four ninety-five of it's in pounds, uh, four pounds or five pounds. And people say, how can you sell this for such a low price? I say, because it's total crap. <laughs> now, he thought he was just saying it to the room. Uh, he didn't think there was any, any media around, but there was, and it was reported in the, in the media, and... Um, he ruined his company. He ruined the brand name so that uh, within less than a year, it went from a, being worth a billion pounds to half a billion pounds, and he was fired, and the company had to change its name. I find that interesting. <laughs> it was so bad that they had to change the name to something else. And uh, now whenever, whenever a, um, a CEO or somebody in, big in the company says something that sort of shoots himself in the foot, business people say he was doing a ratner. Anyway, this does not scratch the surface of a five-year period where we went from show 130 to show number 445. That's a lot of segments, and of course, only about one-third of our total. Our next few programs will be themed, starting, I think, with science topics for the next show and maybe comedy bits the week after that. We're also going to try and tack on some segments that will keep us in present time, as we'll do next. If you're a Radio Parallax listener, and we assume you are, you know what that music means. And if we're going to do some contemporary items and not just a look back, well, I think that's where we're going to start, Mr. McMillan. And you know, I got a whole pile of these in front of me, having collected some of the Week magazine, which is where we usually extract these items. So let's jump into them. And I think I'll lump some goods together with some bads together with some uglies together, if you don't mind. Anyway, in our opinion, it was a good week a couple weeks back for True Love with the news that former Playboy playmate Karen McDougal says her affair with former President Trump lasted for 10 months in 2006 and that he told her he loved her. McDougal told the Daily Mail, I was in love with him. He was in love with me. One should note that their relationship began at a pool party at the Playboy Mansion which took place shortly before Trump's wife, Melania, the former first lady, gave birth to their son, Barron. McDougal, now age 52, said she saw Trump about five times a month, that's the part I really like, before she dumped him for actor Bruce Willis. 
And we have to say it was a good week for marketing a few weeks back with the news that a Taylor Swift fan is using an e-commerce site to advertise a pair of contact lenses she wore while viewing Swift's ongoing sold-out Eras tour. The contacts are in excellent condition, the seller says, and you can have them for only $10,000. Yes, Mr. that does work out to $5,000 per eye for contact lenses through which Taylor Swift was viewed. And it was a good week recently, I would say, for reaping what you sow, with the news according to the Washington Post that between 2020 and 2022, states with Republican-controlled legislatures had about a 50% higher rate of deaths from firearms than states with Democrat-controlled legislatures. Oh, and they also had about a 35% higher rate of mass killings. You know, I'm going to go out of sequence here. I've got a bunch of bad items. Let's jump right to the ugly item. In one week last May, it was surely an ugly week for use of tech. With the news that a pair of sisters trying to locate a manta ray tour on Hawaii's Big Island followed their GPS's directions and drove straight into the ocean, said a witness who saw the tourists drive their Dodge Caravan down a boat ramp and into the harbor. It was so confidently done. They were still smiling. Evidently, the passenger escaped out a window while onlookers jumped in to help the driver out of the van and back to shore. A Hawaiian state spokesman said that GPS-induced mishaps at the harbor had occurred before, adding, if you see a body of water, don't drive towards it. Even if there's manta rays there? I would think so. And it was also surely an ugly week for altruism. Another week last May, when it was revealed that a Paraguayan politician, Arturo Mendez, defended the practice of giving money, beer, and food to indigenous people in exchange for their votes, because he said, quote, it would be heartless not to, unquote. He's got my vote. Good, good. All right, I think we have four bad week items now to run through. Balancing off Karen McDougal, we would note that it was a bad week last week for true love with the news that far-right Colorado Representative Lauren Boebert, who once advised women that all marital difficulties could be solved by, quote, the power that you have in Christ, unquote, announced that she's divorcing Jason, the father of her four children. And it appears it was certainly a bad week for diplomacy last week with the news that John Kennedy, U.S. Senator from Louisiana, Republican, said at a hearing that, quote, without the people of America... The people of Mexico would be eating cat food out of a can and living in a tent. Mexico's U.S. Ambassador Esteban Moctezuma called Kennedy's comment low, uninformed, and arrogant. And it was also a bad week last week for urban sprawl, at least in Australia, with the news that a family in Sydney has refused to sell its property to developers who've surrounded their lush five-acre estate with housing tracks. The Zamet family has reportedly turned down as much as $33 million, I assume that's an Australian, which is still a nice chunk of change, even after one neighbor after another has sold out. It used to be farmland dotted with little red brick homes and cottages, said Diane Zamet, age 50. There was so much space, but not anymore. Still, she says, her family is not selling. Ms. Merlin, I think we ought to call Australia and talk to the Zamet family. She's a hero. I think so. And finally, my personal favorite of the lot. I would note that it was a bad week last week for excuses. 
in the wake of a man reportedly suspected of drunk driving in Colorado tried to escape the charges by putting his dog behind the wheel. Police said that after the man was pulled over for going 52 in a 30-mile-an-hour zone, quote, the driver attempted to switch places with his dog, who was in the passenger seat, unquote. That's according to the Springfield Police Department. And it gets better. After the officers saw the switch, and when he then asked the driver if he'd been drinking, the man ran off and was quickly apprehended. No word about whether the dog faced any citations. All right, one item I'd like to address in the time we have left is something we made a a mention of in our reference to Sean Minton, our sports guy. Sports betting. The Week magazine has a briefing about the casino on the couch, noting the legalization of sports betting is generating billions of dollars in revenue and, and ruining lots of lives. Let's talk about this. The question was asked, how much is being bet? And the answer is a staggering amount. Last year, Americans placed $93.7 billion in game bets, according to the trade publication Sports Handle. And in the first three months of this year, nearly $30 billion was bet, which will work out to a rate of $120 billion a year. That, ladies and gentlemen, would surpass the $108 billion Americans spent on lotteries last year and marks a massive increase from the $21 billion legally bet on sports as recently as 2020. Until 2018, sports betting was banned everywhere in the U.S. except Nevada casinos. But five years ago, the Supreme Court struck down a federal ban allowing states to legalize sports betting. The result was the biggest expansion of legal gambling in United States history. 33 states now have legal sports betting, and four more will soon will. And another eight states have pending legislation on voter referendums. In 24 states with legal online gambling, placing a bet is as simple as owning a smartphone app. It's put a casino with the tip of everyone's hand, said Mark Edelman, an expert in sports gambling at Baruch College. To the question, do sports leagues support this? The answer is, for a century, major sports leagues vehemently opposed legal gambling, calling it a threat to sports integrity. Gee, do you think? One of the biggest scandals in sports history was the 1919 Black Sox scandal in which eight members of the Chicago White Sox were accused of throwing the World Series in return for payments from a gambling syndicate. In 2012, Major League Baseball Commissioner Bud Selig said, Gambling is evil, creates doubt, and destroys your sport. But when you know it, after the Supreme Court ruling, pro leagues did not want to miss out on the tsunami of money going to private gambling companies and tax money going to states. And now they fully embrace sports betting. You know, I note in this program, Ms. Vermillion, that uh, I cast some doubt on the NFL playoffs the last couple of years, thinking they just, uh, they just some of the games just didn't, didn't seem to pass the smell test for me. And I tell you, this really puts even a worse smell in my nostrils. As far as what uh, what this all means, well, uh, all these leagues, sports leagues, have partnerships with sports books. They're called NHL and MLB players are free to sign endorsement deals with gambling companies, while the NBA allows players' images in sports book ads. Sportscasters now rarely discuss betting lines, and last year, TV viewers and radio listeners were barraged with one point eight billion dollars worth of ads from sports books such as DraftKings, FanDuel, and Caesars, complete with celebrity endorsements. I guess this explains why it is KGO, formerly the king 
of talk show stations in the Bay Area has now switched to being all sports betting all the time. Mr. Millen is incredulous that they could be wall-to-wall talk of sports betting. And I could be wrong about this, but I've, I've listened in, and I don't think so. That seems to be all they discuss. I'll bet you 10 bucks you're wrong. <laughs> I'll give you 7 to 5 I'm right. You got it. And, of course, we point out it, it isn't just all about who's going to win or lose the game and what the line is. These sportsbook companies generate multiple bets per player by offering a host of ways to bet beyond on who's going to win or lose. There are parlay bets that hinge on the outcome of several different games with potential jackpot payouts and micro prop bets, such as whether a current football possession will end in a touchdown. Such live betting is like playing a slot machine, said Matt Buchalter, a Toronto actuary who, who teaches sports betting. A lot of problem gaming behaviors get exacerbated when you're betting every 30 seconds instead of every three hours. Gee, do you think so? It's noted that, not surprisingly, the boom in betting has been followed by a surge in problem gambling. It's noted that for those who have such a problem, cell phone apps make gambling hard to resist. What's being done about this? Well, it appears to me a whole lot of nothing. Advocates for problem gamblers are calling for tighter restriction on advertising, such as bans on ads during games or on college campuses, but uh, we'll see how far that goes. That pretty much does it for today's show, which is being brought to you on KDVS to the good offices of our friend Guy Tortorisi. This has been Radio Parallax, and it's produced, as always, by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you soon. You got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. Know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting when the dealing is done.